When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recall This Book. I'm here with my co-host, John Plotz. Hello, John. Hello. And today we're really happy to welcome Rio Morimoto to our to our show. Hey, Rio, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Great. Um, Rio is an assistant professor of anthropology at Princeton University. Uh, he's also, I feel compelled to say, a PhD from Brandeis. Um, and he's uh, has a forthcoming book in June 2023 from the University of California Press entitled Nuclear Ghost Atomic Livelihoods in Fukushima's Gray Zone. And he's going to talk about that with us today. So, um, Rio, if you could kind of just get us started telling us a little bit about the project and, and what you learned. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me. It's it's exciting. And as Elizabeth mentioned, uh, I went to Brandeis for my PhD. And then, you know, I guess half of this project was conceived while I was a PhD student there. And I have to say, you know, things changed a lot. And I think this what this book brings is that last decade of the Fukushima accident and then done so ethnographically. So, you know, it's been a very interesting project to me and an also sticky one in the sense like, well, how long one can do <laughs> ethnography of a one specific field, you know, and what does it mean to, you know, stay with a same group of people, in my case was the eight years, I think, uh, which made it very difficult for me to actually write this book. And then COVID for me was a, a saving grace in the sense of finishing the project because I was not able to visit the area. And that finally made it possible for me to write something about it. So, you know, that gave me a lot of time reflecting on what is it that I did in that area. And in particular, you know, I think the book really um, talks about like what, you know, what does it mean to write about the people uh, against the sort of imagination of the public? And, you know, and I think, you know, the introduction I was honored to share with um, John and Elizabeth, I think I spent a lot of time talking about myself, actually, um, you know, describing what is it that, that I brought to the field and what happened um, 
as a result of the long-term engagement with a group of people in the region. So, you know, I think you know, the weird thing about this book is that as much as it's motivated around um, talking about the triple disasters that happened in 2011 and aftermath, but it's a lot about the, um, you know, not directly related to the disaster, but, you know, more of the afterlife of the disasters and what does it mean for us to, you know, approach something as a disaster which conventionally looked at as an event. But what happens if we approach disaster as a um, process and, a, you know, constantly shape-shifting, um, you know, um, phenomena that, you know, that people actually live along and then live with. So um, to, you know, to briefly kind of summarize my book, I think, you know, it, it's it's a very sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, unexpected kind of story that I'm trying to tell uh, in the book. So, you know, if people maybe like find it, oh, I want to learn about the Fukushima accident, they might not get what they're looking for. <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, when I was writing it, I was actually really thinking about um, how can I betray um, potential readers' expectation here? And then, you know, and I kind of took a pride of that as my ethnographic work of Hokushima. Yeah. I really like that formulation of uh, the disaster as something other than an event, Rio, because that's something I... I've been thinking about that in terms of thinking about the Anthropocene and earlier uh, moments of human monstrosity, including, for example, the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that distinction between understanding something as momentary and unfolding as uh, um, as as event and unfolding as a kind of ongoing structure. Um, would you say that's the is that the crucial? move in your book to try to think about this as as extension over time or well i think you know in disaster studies and especially in anthropology you know i think people have been really um you know looking at disaster as in process as opposed to an event so you know that perspective is not anything new um i think if anything that you know what's new is that i'm really thinking about process, not in terms of the short term of the window of, say, year or two. But here I'm kind of like describing what I've experienced through like last eight years um, after the accident, especially in between 2013 and then 2019 and 20. So in that sense, I think process here to me is not the kind of process you would think like, okay, what if like we focus on like, you know, the year long journey of the resident, but I'm kind of saying like, no, that's, that's not necessary um, process in terms of how we can um, understand this still ongoing mm -hmm. um, disasters uh, that happened in, in 2011. Yeah. And one way you crystallize that beautifully um uh, is through your, you have an anecdote and I bet it's a continuing theme for the book, but in the introduction of the anecdote of the Geiger counter, mm -hmm. um, which I understand you have with you, very exciting, yep. mm -hmm. but, um, so do you want to maybe just remind us what you say about the, you know, to your own experience, bringing a Geiger counter with you into the, to the zone? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, you know, the Geiger counter was a critical object for me, you know, um, from the beginning to the end, to be honest. And partly because, you know, that radiation is not something you can immediately experience. You know, it's beyond human sensorium. And we need some technical assistance to be able to uh -huh. sense or even to experience, right? And much of what happened after the accident was that, that we had to rely on these technological devices to understand what your potentially familiar environment, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was a lot of discussion around this technological device as a way to sort of access the objective um, facts about the post-fallout um, coastal Fukushima, the area where I studied. Um, but at the same time, um, the residents' relationship with Geiger counters shifted over time. That is like, you know, even though each household was given a Geiger counter by the city or municipality office, but when, by the time I arrived in, this, in the field, which was in the summer of 2013, most of the residents didn't use Geiger counter. And I appeared with a Geiger counter and they would look at me as like, oh, you must be from outside. Mm -hmm. So I was like, how do you know? I was like, well, because you're holding Geiger counter. Who who would hold Geiger counter in this area, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but, you know, I was still new. I was still very concerned, especially given the information available outside about the state of Fukushima. But to me, it was like, well, if you don't, you know, use Geiger counter to understand this space, like how else would you know, right? Especially to sort of um, fact check what the state or the electric company is telling you. Right. Well, you, you describe it even more, more strongly as not just people are kind of perplexed by you having it, but they're they don't really like it, right? They don't really like that you have it. They don't really like its presence. And they're, they're sort of, you know, you, you recount someone saying, you know, well, what difference would it, like, let's say it has a high reading. What does that actually mean? And I think yeah. that's just very interesting in terms of, you know, a whole bunch of experiences that, that people have about the relationship between these objects that supposedly measure, you know, stuff that is important to our bodies and health. But also, what about mask wearing during the pandemic? I mean, it's not exactly analogous, yeah. but I mean, there's this shibboleth quality, you know, where you're semiotically announcing something <laughs> as well yes, as protecting true. yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, one interesting thing about the Geiger counter that I, you know, came to experience in the field was that once you have it, you actually want to see higher score. Oh, my right? God. Which is very different from wow. wearing masks. So, you know, wow. so usually it doesn't fluctuate, right? Yeah. So, you know, radiation is naturally present, you know, regardless of where you are, you get yeah. some amount of reading. Yeah. Because, you know, if the number doesn't change, it gets really boring, right? Because yeah. if people yeah. are like, well, nothing is changing, what's the yeah. point of having this stuff? Yeah. You know, even if it's like a little little bit higher than the average or, you know, right. what's considered safe, right? If, you know, if it says like it's 1.2, it's 1.2 all the time, people lose interest. 
Yeah. Right. But what happened is that the you know because of the haphazard spread of the contaminants across space, it's possible for you to be able to, you know, go and find what they call hotspots. Hotspot. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you are very like you know attached to your Geiger counter and consider that. That as a way of knowing the post fallout Fukushima, what would happen is that you end up going to areas where people might not go due to their concern about higher level of radiation. Wow! Right. So, for local residents, sometimes the outsider like myself coming with the Geiger counter signaled, "Okay, there's another individual who came to look for." The dangerous area where we might not go because we've done this already. We know that's why we're not going to these areas. But the problem for them was that you know these outsiders, the one who would go into those you know areas, nobody goes and report their readings Uh to outside saying they could look what I found in Fukushima. Yeah. And it's not and like, my, yeah, we know that's yeah, why we don't go there. Right. This yeah. is not my subjective experience, but this objective device is telling us it's dangerous there, right? Right, right. That's fascinating. Yeah. So this technological devices at times, especially in the beginning of my field work, really drove, you know, where I went mm-hmm. in Fukushima. Mm-hmm. And those places are what the media represented oftentimes as the iconic sort of sites of Fukushima, mm-hmm. right? Sacrifice zones. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is it also that, because this is connected to the broader argument of the book, I think, that the Geiger counter, by having the Geiger counter as a point around which interaction happens, it's sort of placing them as, they're they're being defined then as victims of this nuclear accident, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the <laughs> Geiger counter is smart in the sense that it, you know, detects something we can't. But at the same time, only thing it's able to tell is that there's a radioactive sources nearby, mm-hmm. right? right? It doesn't say where exactly the sources are or what they are, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So it could be uh, radiation, you know, this the isotopes that are released during the Cold War weapons program. Right, right. You know, right. which all of us live with, right? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe it came directly from Fukushima. Or maybe it's actually the residues from the Chernobyl accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. so it kind of like start giving like really like black and white view of the state of the world based on the presence or absence. Uh, the radioisotopes, the contaminants in the area, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but sort of with no divorce from history. Exactly, right. no context or nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I can I go back to that question? The way you began, Rio, about the Geiger counter is that it tells you something you can't experience. Like we don't mm-hmm. have any empirical sensoria available, so we create this prosthetic sensing device instead. Is your understanding of it that once we create that device it becomes like a sixth sense i guess like it gets internalized like prosthetically incorporated into our sensoria or is it something more like um 
unnatural or estranged? I mean, are you seeing it primarily as a way of amplifying or augmenting, or are you seeing it as like a, um, I don't know, a, a, like a deceptive signal that, that is outside of the bodily experience? Yeah, so, you know, I guess, like, I should clarify that the kind of radiation I'm talking here is what's considered low level, yeah. right? The kind of uh, radiation exposure that would not have any immediate physical biological right. effect, right? Sure. Um, the cases from Hiroshima and Nagasaki or other places, you know, people could directly um, basically damage from the high intensity radiation, which sure. case, like, it's sensible. Um, right. But the level is low enough that would not affect your biological entity immediately. That's when things become a little bit gray, right? right. How, how long can you be exposed and not? Um, to answer your question, um, I think the um, interesting thing here is that, you know, um, device like this and, and the possibility of extending our sensorium actually end up kind of producing the standard language with which people might be able to communicate about something beyond their senses, right? So there's a good thing about like, okay, we need to have some objective standard as a way to address something not immediately visible. Yeah. I think all of us experience in the case of COVID and then science came to provide some sense of you know, objective yeah. fact. Or with the which air to quality stay. index yeah, or something. Yeah, air quality yeah. index, something like that to help us to kind of relate to this thing. But the other issue is that if that mode of, you know, knowledge or even the language around it becomes the hegemonic way of understanding a particular environment or area, that's when the issue comes, you know, that is like, you know, that's kind of like refer back to what Elizabeth was talking about, how focusing on only this kind of thing might end up eliding the way that, the, you know, people experience their place or the cultures and history, right? Because this objective thing comes, well, actually, area is contaminated. And people said, yeah, but still, like, I have family here. I'm very connected to this culture. You know what I mean? Like, so I think the, the problem came from the scientification of the accident, you know, and the aftermath as the only way to talk about what happened in Fukushima. And I think that's what my book is, like, really trying to get at. You know, what are the things that we have missed as a result of, in a way, comforting our own sort of sense of fear of the invisible, right? Yeah. So you said that in your description of the book just now, you talked about writing against the media coverage. And um, and also, I, I really like the way you put this as sort of betraying your readers' <laughs> expectations, not just disrupting them, but betraying them. That's I like that. Um, and maybe even your own expectations, because you you describe your own entrance into the field as, as in that way as well. Um, but can you talk a little bit or, or about the the way the, the memorialization of the of the event, um, which has come to be called 311, right? Because mm -hmm. it happened on March 11th. Uh, this episode is is airing right around then. Um and um, 
what does that do? I mean, that's not exactly scientification. That's some other kind of vacation happening. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So you know, I think you know, I when I was doing PhD, I was really focusing on like how people go about memorializing or even commemorate on um, 3-11. And I think I focus a lot more on like what kind of material object people might go about using this to represent, you know, especially in the case where, you know, you cannot even see, you know, the, um, the uh, object, right, right that right. might have to be commemorated or memorized. Um, but after I graduated and kept on working uh, with uh, people there, I think my understanding of memorization changed a lot, uh, partly yeah. because, um, you know, I kind of wrote it in the intro too, is that my commitment to really understanding or even treating people like people, that is like, uh, even the local residents who directly experienced the disasters and its aftermath, their memory constantly kept changing. Their understanding, their relationship to the disaster changed over time. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. even the local residents actually resist often time of fixating what it was that 311 to them, right? Right. Or they even sometimes said, like, no, that's not as important now because of the COVID, you know. So uh -huh. um, so one of the ideas I'm trying to toy with in my book is this Japanese um, understanding or relationship to the disaster. There's one sociologist who kind of coined the term called the between disasters. Uh -huh. That is like we're constantly living in between right. more than one disaster. Right. And each given moment, right? right? The example is that the people in Fukushima currently are going through a global pandemic, right. Right. but their reference point is like 311, right? right? right. So right. they're kind of like constantly doing back and forth between what is about this new disasters that we experienced and that relates to the old one or the other way around, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So. So commemoration or memorization of the disaster really is contextual here in the sense like what's happening in the present or what they anticipate will happen in the future affect the way they want to remember the event in the past. So I, I have, that's a, such a great formulation. I have actually a couple of different questions about that, Rio, and maybe you can pick which one. So mm -hmm. the first one was one I sort of was trying to lead up to earlier, which is the specificity of whether how the afterlife of Hiroshima and Nagasaki fits in here. Because I, I understand, obviously, you know, memories can't be indefinitely long, and that is something that happened in only the living memory of very few people. But I wonder how much it frames the encounter. Mm -hmm. But then just to your more general point of uh, the, the the formulation that you gave, which I think of as like, we're always fighting the last war, you know, that in any given present day experience, you, you, you only bring to bear it, the last one. There's a wonderful book by Paul St. Amour called Tense Future. I don't know if you know it, but it's basically yeah. about how people live in the the interwar period was understood already as an interwar period, even before World War II took place. Like, in other words, that you live with the awareness, not just that we had the Great War, but that having had the Great War, we're going to have another. 
And I, I'd just love to hear your thoughts about how that relates to your point about um, the iterative structure of these things. Like if it's not one damn thing, it's another. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess it's not, you know, I don't necessarily consider as iterative of more of the mathematical sense of like, you know, there is yeah. some regu regularity yeah. because one of the things that I was very surprised uh, to find in the region through my field work was that the kind of path that the people choose to sort of reactivate um, is very nonlinear, mm. right? So for example, you know, one of the chapters I start talking about the, you know, the persimmons, you know, as a fruit. And the local people kept talking about the importance of persimmons. And I was like, why, why is it important when you're talking about 311? It turned out that the particular fruit bear the history of internal migration from one region to another that was propelled by the past historical, um, you know, the disaster or the yeah. famines in that region. Yeah. So there was a big famine happened like 200 whatever years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in a particular uh, area, basically asked for people to move from other part. Yeah. And then all these poor people and the farmers from other regions moved but they wanted to bring some aspect of their former life to the new area so they just stuck this uh, persimmon branch into the daikon radish which is moist mm -hmm. and to walk across the the yeah. mountains right yeah, yeah, so yeah. so like once they told me about this type of history it makes sense why is it that they want to remember that particular things yeah. as opposed to for example the story of like some of their family member working for kamikaze pilot and stuff like that and then this kind of leads to your first question about the connection to hiroshima and nagasaki um many Fukushima residents um do not want to have much association with Hiroshima and Nagasaki because it's very written with stigma um, as a very, you know, iconic image of uh, dehumanization as a result of radiation exposure. And they don't want to be really kind of associated with that. And initially the Hiroshima and Nagasaki people didn't really make the connection with Fukushima, partly because uh, they are the most enthusiastic supporter of nuclear energy after the war kind of stuff. So there, you know, there's a historical dimension, but, you know, the, the current, the present moment, I think the collaboration is beginning to flourish, partly because of the common issue of aging population. That is that there is, um, you know, the increased loss of the, the group of exposed populations in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's becoming like an urgent task to pass down the memory of the atomic age into the future, right? So for them, like the most sort of relevant point is like the 311s and then, you know, the uh -huh. national sort of experience of radiation exposure. So I think, you know, again, like the new event is like really reshuffling the ways that the, you know, nation or even the local communities are imagining the way that, you know, to sort of, um, shift the way that you know we can kind of memorialize uh -huh. this uh, uh -huh. more recent past and would you describe that as a shift maybe this is oversimplifying but um there's a there's a way in which the the fukushima case is sort of about living with disaster mm -hmm. right 
whereas the the sort of iconic and kind of you know the dehumanization comes from the sort of dying with a disaster right and those image you know very searing images um i can totally imagine why they would, would want to distance themselves from that particular way of being mm -hmm. represented but is it kind of a like from dying dying from to living with or something like that still you know i think japanese uh people are negotiating with their relationship with radiation exposure. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the Fukushima case might be very unsettling to many of us because it actually provides, um, you know, potential cases of that, you know, we could actually live with certain right. level of radiation, which is a kind of structural position might be very difficult to accept given the memory of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm -hmm. right? right? So I think the balance between Hiroshima and Nagasaki and Fukushima as more of the icons and the structural position kind of creates a difficult sort of negotiation process. Yeah. And hence, like I felt like in my introduction, I had to be very careful about you know, my sort of presentation of, okay, let me show you, you know, how people lived with radiation. Right. But it, it doesn't mean like I'm kind of like a pro-nuclear person trying right, to exactly. defend, right? Right, right. <laughs> I and felt the need like to do that. Some people died and some people, many people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki yeah. lived, right? So Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So, so maybe that's, um, is a good moment to shift to a sort of more general question around studies of of suffering or disaster or 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 violence. Um, you know, within anthropology, and I think I think more broadly too, there's kind of a conversation that's maybe a reaction against former ways of of representing um, these kinds of things. Somewhat of a feeling that there's a certain um, even in 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 sort of calling out these kinds of um, dehumanizing events or motives, that the account of them can also participate in its own kind of dehumanizing, or that there can be a sort of you know voyeurism or an, an, an attention to the abjectness. And I see your study along with a number of other studies. And actually, I my own work on gold mining participates in this conversation as well about sort of moving away from that kind of um, notion of the the abject or the victim. So I'm curious what you think. Yeah. So you know, um, I think that's really a central project of thinking about. Especially my case is that you know I work with a sub-discipline within anthropology, anthropology of disaster, where the topic is basically <laughs> about, you know, talking about people who might have suffered or are still suffering, right. right? So that question about like, you know, what kind of things that I will write about uh, with regards to the community I worked with was in the back of my head all the time. But also my interlocutors themselves have been bombarded by the medias or the researchers, writers, you know, documentary filmmakers, you name it, right? Like after the accident, they all came to basically, in a way, extract 
the dramatic stories of radiation exposure. So I was always looked at by the local residents that I'm another one of them who came to basically explore mm-hmm. the dramatic stories to tell to outside and never come back. Yeah. Right. So I was always like being mindful about like, okay, what does it mean? you know, to write about disaster here. And also like, you know, somebody like Paul Farmer, you know, really talked about writing of sufferings and Hades and, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And his solution was kind of like talking in terms of, I was one of them in a way, I had a mm-hmm. privilege to be part of this reconstruction and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then and then my case was like, well, regardless of what I did or how long I stayed, ultimately I was not, the resident there mm-hmm. you know people always made the decision i mean distinction saying like well you can leave if you if you want to but right. we can't you know that's what makes us different you know and also like those people are like like funny and interesting beyond right. <laughs> talking about the disasters right so right. most of the time i spend like watching tv together and saying something this is so i was like how can I talk about this as part of my disaster anthropology? So I think I wasn't coming from that theoretical kind of position of how can I write against those literature? But I think I was like, how can I write about what I actually experienced without like pretending like there's some interesting information there? Because that kind of commitment already said like, well, I'm selecting and saying that something is more important than others. And also, like, to me, the ghost figure really helped me to make the distinction you're talking about. That is that this particular informant, who is actually the only person who, you know, mentioned their experience or, you know, whatever in the area as nuclear ghost. Mm-hmm. And nobody else say that, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But in the same sort of context, um, she was the one who said, like, well, you know, if you're holding Geiger counter, you must believe in something mm-hmm. invisible, right? Yeah, right? And I, you know, like looking back, I can tell that, that she was just like fooling with me, yeah. <laughs> right? As an outsider. <laughs> but at the moment, I was super yeah. confused. Like, what do you mean? Like, without this, you won't know. Like, so yeah. the nuclear ghost you're talking about must be the radiation that neither of us can experience right which the story comes like to tell a different story but you know i think the figure of ghost here is doing a lot of work for me hence i guess the title yeah and i mean then like you know i really have to kind of go back to my origin you know so to speak of upbringing what i knew about ghosts right um so you know and in japan the ghosts are not um unusual figures like you know people actually constantly live with it and they talk about it right but one thing that's important in terms of the way they conceptualize ghosts is that you know the ghosts are shape-shifting figures they constantly shift shapes right that's the only thing and also like they basically appear because they have some message right Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a moral message or anything. It's just that we know that they have some message and until we receive them, they won't go away. Right? They change shapes to kind of trying to communicate to us something. Uh-huh. 
And to me, that sort of a figure really spoke well with the kind of things happening in the area. Are they scared? Um, I mean, that they can be scary. Um, you know, they are very scary type of ones to the very cutesy ones to, you know, whatever have you, you know, um, but they this basically the very basic definition is like they're shapeshifters. Mm. That's great. Well, so this has been a marvelous conversation. Um, and maybe this is a moment when we can think of some recallable books that is a book or something else that might suggest to our listeners uh, other directions to go with this conversation. So, um, John, I don't know if you have one and you want to start. I do. I have a really quick one. It's um, a book called Roadside Picnic, which is a science fiction novel by the Russian brothers Arkady and Boris Strugatsky, who were very influenced by Karl Chopek and Stanislaus Lem. And uh, it, it actually spawned the movie Stalker. So if you know the Stalker movie by Tarkovsky, but it's about an area called The Zone, which is the area in this science fictional world where aliens have landed. And only a few sort of basically dodgy criminals go into the zone, but they have their own code of conduct. And it's it's essentially a mafia novel set inside the zone about, you know, what it means to be an insider, one of the people who's willing to go into that space, which is actually very deadly. So it's not a perfect match in some ways, but it's it's kind of about, yeah, it's about living with two different ways of in, encountering the same world. And actually there's a very popular video game, which I think was called the zone, which is based on it, which came out after Chernobyl. So the novel is pre Chernobyl. The movie is pre Chernobyl, but then after Chernobyl, the video game really literalized the connection to the Chernobyl area. So that's a, it's, I think it's a fascinating genealogy. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Rio, how about you? Yeah. Well, I was, I was kind of thinking, uh, about saying after dark by Haruki Murakami, but I will change it to, uh, 1QA4, uh, which is also by, uh, Murakami, but, uh, this is the, the kind of novel that we actually kind of, they're related, talk about the Japanese experience of dealing with this, uh, cult terrorism of the subway sarin attack, right? But um, the story is doing a couple of things, uh, one of which is the dimension I explore in my book, which is to kind of like think about, you know, what if we don't kind of consider there is not a big difference between what's considered real or surreal, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then the figure of ghost to me is doing that kind of work of really not distinguishing these two. And and then in the novel, there is sort of a description of the scene where the protagonist entered into parallel world, where you would know that in the, it's a parallel world because there are two moons. Oh, wow. And then that's the only thing different from the world. And that's the kind of way that the residents really experience the city after the accident that is that the outsider coming in oh. entering into a different city but along with them but they're seeing two moons there and it, while the residents are only seeing one moon so okay. you know so i think that that book maybe really speaks to uh, my project here that's great that's great so i was gonna i was thinking of uh the novel the ghost road by pat barker Although now that we're talking more about ghosts, I think there, there seem to be multiple kinds of ghosts, of course. Um, but that's a, it's set in, uh, World War One and it's about, um, it 
has kind of a set of parallel stories. Pat Barker's trilogy um, combines fictional characters with with historical characters. Um, and in this one, there's, you know, both this sort of idea of the ghosts that are kind of present in the war and in the trenches. And one point she describes leaving people as ghosts in the making. Um, but the other thing that it makes me think of is there's a um, long part of the novel that follows the anthropologist W.H.R. Rivers um, on an anthropology or an ethnographic um, um, field trip um, with a group that is intensely involved with ghosts. So there, there too, there are multiple kinds of ghosts. Well, great. Um, we will we will make sure to provide links to to these things on the website and um, also to your forthcoming book. And uh, I think we're just ready now to thank our listeners and to thank you, Rio, so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And to say goodbye. Recall this book was founded by John Plotz and me, Elizabeth Ferry. It is sponsored by Brandeis University and the Mandel Humanities Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Peary of the English Department. We are eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTV, thanks for listening.